Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show, Science Dispatch Podcast, episode 54. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm your host, as always, Cameron English. My co-host, the faithful, the dedicated Dr. Chuck Dinnerstein, Director of Medicine at the American Council on Science and Health. And we have a special guest for you, uh, someone joining us for the very first time. We are joined by Katie Shaletta, who is a new contributor to ACSH. And uh, she's been writing some really interesting stuff about nutrition and um, the way this, this, these different products and services are marketed and regulated. Um, but let me give you some background on her. So, so Katie, your background is public health, health informatics, infectious diseases. You have two master's degrees, one in health informatics and a master's in public health. And you're working on a doctorate in health sciences at George Washington University. So you have credentials as long as my arm. That's impressive. Congratulations. <laughs> and let um, and let's let's jump right into the story. This is uh, one of the first ones you've written for us, and it's just very simply titled "The Institute for Integrative Nutrition." So let me read the summary at the top, and then I just want to kind of dive into uh, some of the specifics there. So you write, "My background is in public health, and I love the idea of making healthcare accessible for everyone." But health coaching, exemplified by the Institute for Integrative Nutrition (IIN), in its current state, is not healthcare. It's the wild west of healthcare, and we need a sheriff. Very beautifully written. So b- before we go too far, what is health coaching is that exactly? Because I'm not clear on it. And then what is this institute you're talking about? Wonderful questions. So health coaching really is sort of the way that healthcare is starting to morph. Um, we have this kind of intersection between wellness and the official kind of healthcare sector. And health coaching sort of exists on the periphery of kind of both of those things. Uh, it's very much influenced by wellness culture, which we can talk about later on, which um, the Institute for Integrative Nutrition is a big part of as well. But it, it sort of started off as a well-intentioned profession that was very much geared around trying to help people who had been hospitalized for conditions with, for conditions such as type 2 diabetes or possibly even smoking-related conditions where you might need some extra help with say diet or exercise or lifestyle changes, um, especially especially you know around smoking and quitting and smoking cessation stuff. So that's kind of where health coaching came out of was the extra boost that your providers couldn't necessarily give you while you were in the hospital or that your GP can't necessarily meet with you on a weekly basis to really check in about these things. But a health coach could be there to help you kind of establish what your goals might be or um, sort of guide you in how to potentially most effectively get at those goals. So that's really what started. I'm sorry. It sounds as if this is kind of the the add-on to discharge planning, that this is the person um, that can come in and, and fill in the gaps that are not usually filled in by um, quote-unquote health professionals. Fair enough? Yeah, fair enough. It, it really is kind of a part of care coordination upon discharge. So this institute has a very, very sexy name. Um, and I'm sure that's by design, but uh, what is uh, the Institute for Integrative Nutrition? Are they like one of the providers of these these services? They, they build themselves as, I guess, uh, an educational institution for people who are looking at getting into health coaching. And they really 
try to focus on, or at least they claim to focus on health coaching and nutrition in particular. And so they kind of want to be the trainers of this newfangled profession that we call health coaching, if that makes sense. And uh, is there any training? Because the implication that I'm getting from your article is that there's really no qualifications required. Anybody can become a health coach. It's sort of like, a, I don't know, a life coach or a, if you want to be the next Tony Robbins, you can, you just have to, you know, look well in a suit and speak very well, I, I think. Is it the same sort of situation here? Yes, it's the exact same sort of situation. And it's the type of thing where anybody can kind of throw up their hands in the air one day and just announce, I'm a health coach, and they're officially a health coach. It doesn't matter what their background is. And I've seen health coaches who had backgrounds in musical theater and backgrounds in uh, literature. And, you know, like these are all, these are all great kinds of um, areas, but they have nothing to do with healthcare. And yet people are operating as health coaches with those kinds of backgrounds and that kind of training. So what's the risk here? Presumably these people are not qualified to give any sort of healthcare advice or provide healthcare itself. So, I mean, what, what can go wrong or what has gone wrong in what you've seen in some of these cases? Sure. I, there's a lot that can go wrong. And I think what we're now going to kind of dive into is the way that health coaching intersects with the wellness world of which the wellness industry is kind of this behemoth now, right? Part of Part of what we're seeing is a lot of people are very frustrated with the way that our healthcare in the United States tends to work. And so they turn towards other types of alternative medicine and or um, vitamins and supplements. And sort of this wellness industry has kind of grown up around that. And as a result, I guess the health coaching industry as you know, we would expect, and it's kind of inevitable. We've seen people who, because they're not credentialed, they're not they're not trained, they have no background in healthcare. We've seen people acting in these ways that really are kind of inappropriate for healthcare professionals to be acting. So, if you don't have any credentials or training in dietetics, for example, but you're acting as a registered dietitian, that's not that's not great, and you're probably going to be dispensing some advice that you think is good, but is probably but you know is probably not great. So. A lot of what we're also seeing is sort of an intersection of, I guess, different types of alternative medicine and health coaching. And so health coaches then trying to kind of become almost like a stand-in for physicians. Um, Physicians or nurses, we've got health coaches who have claimed that they can interpret lab results, even though they have no training in how to do that, recommending that people get labs drawn so then they can go and uh, interpret those labs for people, you know, recommending supplements, which are highly, which are very much not regulated. And so kind of acting as, you know, we are prescribing this drug that is not really regulated and I don't really need a background to prescribe to you. And so, like I said, they're, they're kind of almost stand in for stand-ins for physicians at this point. And so we've had a few cases, Heather, I think Del Castillo is how you say her last name, um, requested that her case be taken to the Supreme Court. And she had been acting as a health coach and nutritionist in the state of New Florida, in the state of Florida. And the reason that this even came out was because she, the state of Florida actually protects the title of nutritionist. And so they sent her a cease and desist letter and she then sued the for infringement of her first amendment right to free speech. And so we're seeing a lot of that kind of stuff happening. There was another case that came out of Michigan um, that was very similar. Somebody, you know, acting as a nutrition and health coach who didn't have the credentials to do so and then got slapped by one of the 
I think it was the um, local health department sent her a cease and desist letter, and then she sued over uh, freedom of speech infringement. And so we're seeing a lot of this stuff, and we've we've also seen people peddling some pretty pretty nasty kinds of ideas, lots of eating disorder adjacent type um, nutrition advice, and lots of just kind of grifty grifty advice out there in general. And so people can get really hurt in this area, especially if uh, advice is being peddled under the guise of, I'm a health coach, I know what I'm talking about, even though they may not have any idea what they're talking about at all. So it's, it, well, it, you do say that you think that health coaching is a worthwhile endeavor, but it, it seems as if um, there's no regulation uh, of this at all you know we we talked a few weeks back as i'm listening to what you're saying and, and this discussion about um going to court over free speech uh a conversation we had about what was professional speech with um dr Villar, who writes uh about law for us and it seems that there's that gray area of whether the advice they're giving represents professional advice uh, or not, and that credentialing would give that some uh, credibility. Is that mm -hmm. fair to say? Yeah, I think so. You, do you think, and I get, you know, having read the article along the way, uh, it doesn't seem like the IIN um, provides uh, credibil uh, a, a credibility that we can all agree upon. Is that fair? I also think that's fair, yes. Why would that be? They don't seem to be really looking out for kind of where the, this new profession is going. They more seem to have eyes on their own business, which, right, that is their that is their right as a business to do. However, if you are going to be kind of at the cutting edge of a new profession, especially in healthcare, I think I, at the very least, would hope that we can all ethically be on the same page, that we would want it to have very specific kinds of high standards for the people that are acting in that profession and acting as those professionals. And instead of, um, instead of trying to work on increasing the standards for training or even establishing standards for training and background and um, educational background and whatnot, instead of doing that, they're kind of it seems to be like they are recycling material from that is readily available on YouTube. Um, and not only is readily available on YouTube, but also material that is extremely old. <laughs> and then on top of that, they have also worked with a lobbyist in the past and even this year through this year in order to try to get health coaching to be covered by insurance. But again, they aren't necessarily working on establishing standards for the field and making sure that the field is safe for everybody and uh, and that health coaches can then, you know, become kind of integrated into the healthcare system as we know it today. Interesting. I, I did know that you talked a little bit about the National Board of Medical Examiners doing a collaborative project with one of the, uh, the wellness credentialing groups. Um to try and, um, I think, as you wrote, an unwarranted halo <laughs> to their yeah. efforts. 
Yeah, I, you know, working, working with a National Board of Medical Examiners, I think most people would probably look at that and say, but that's great, you know, those are the people who are potentially, you know, credentialing our physicians, and that's not necessarily the case here, especially because since there is no real regulatory body overseeing this, there's no requirements for any for health coaches you know who who would you even be turning data into which is really what they would be doing uh they would be collecting data uh for oversight purposes on you know who is who is actually meeting what standards and how they're doing that but if you don't have an over an overseeing body you can't really turn data into anybody and if there's no if there's no real requirement then you can't be collecting data on it really Gotcha. Do you, do you think that that it? Well, do you think that this should really become a, a state licensing issue? That the state should be setting standards in, or each state setting their own standards for what represents a, a you know, certified wellness coach or whatever term you want to. And that's a good question. I'm not really sure which way we should go. And the reason is because I think part of what we're also seeing from a national level, especially since the COVID-19 pandemic, is, you know, licensing reciprocity across states can be very difficult for providers. And now with the rise of telemedicine, that oh, yeah. becomes that becomes really sticky, right? And so we, you know, trying to figure out what reciprocity looks like kind of across the country. And I think that that's a much bigger conversation than I than I think I'm even qualified to weigh in on. But at the, you know, just kind of at the first blush, yeah, I think it wouldn't be a bad thing to have to have health coaches licensed the way that other healthcare professionals have to be, be it physicians or nurses or dietitians or, you know, who, I guess, you know, whoever it might be who's working within the healthcare system, if they want to be a part of the healthcare system and they want to be healthcare professionals, you know, let's, let's get them licensed. Let me, uh, oh, go ahead, Chuck. I was going to say, one of the things that I find very interesting about this, this is just another in, in a series of discussions about the scope uh, of care that can be provided. And the physicians have been uh, very uh, guarding of the, the scope of practice. They've tried to hold things back from the, the nurse uh, practitioners. Certainly they tried to make those efforts and have been more successful with the uh, physician assistants. Uh, and this just seems to be an, an, another area uh, where they're getting into. On the other hand, um, the fact that there's so many other people that are trying to um, provide advice, credentialed or not, suggests that there's a, there's a primary failing in, in the healthcare system of providing those services in, in an affordable, accessible way. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think given how many people are interested in the wellness industry and how big the wellness industry has become, I think we can cut, glean a couple of things from that. One, marketing works. <laughs> but two, people are very unsatisfied with the healthcare that they are currently receiving. Now, there can be all kinds of different reasons for that. Um, but that being said, if people are unhappy with or dissatisfied with healthcare for some reason, I don't think that it's, you know, the answer can't be that just influencers on social media, um, or just random people declaring that they're a health coach. That's also not the answer because we, you know, we do have a very advanced healthcare system and medicine is also very advanced and therefore we need we need trained people in order to actually administer what we know works versus 
just kind of shooting from the hip. I feel like this works or I, I really like the idea of this. Therefore, let's just go ahead and say that it works and start recommending it to everybody. That's, that's setting us back several steps. <laughs> and so we don't want to do that because we're also going to get people hurt and killed that way. Let me, as we wrap up here, channel our colorful comment section. Inevitably, we're going to get this question or someone's going to make a statement to this effect. So let me put on my devil's advocate crazy hat, if you will. <laughs> so, so Katie, you know, I'm an American and I believe in health freedom. And if I want to get dietary advice from a dance major, who the hell are you to stop me? You know, why, like, don't I have any say in my health care, my body, my choice, et cetera, et cetera. What do you, what do you say to something like that? Sure. Uh, I mean, I health freedom can often look and masquerade as something else um, that it actually isn't. And I'm, I don't want to be here telling people exactly what it is that they should be doing. Um, you are always welcome to seek a second opinion from a different provider of, you know, from a different healthcare system, whatever that might be. We're not taking that away. That's not what we're suggesting. What we're suggesting is that there should be a baseline of standards for people to meet if they're going to be operating in the healthcare space. And that is to keep everybody safe. That is not, that doesn't mean that it's going to take away anybody's choice for, for any provider that they want. It is more just a, we want to make sure that if people are actually out there dispensing advice that they have gone through standard education, they actually have some credentials behind it and they've got the training behind it in order to dispense advice so that that standard kind of raises this standard for everybody and protects people from taking potentially deadly advice. Good stuff. Well said. Well, if anybody objects, there you go. I think that's a very reasonable answer. Do what you want, but make sure you're getting your input from people that know what they're talking about. It seems, I don't know. It seems like a wise thing. That's what I do with my car. I don't know why I would do anything different with my health, but um, in any case, Katie, I, we're going to link to the article and people will be able to find you on our, on our website, but is there anywhere else they, that you would encourage them to go to find out more about you or your work? Uh, I mean, I, I do, I'm also a researcher, so I do publish and uh, you can find me through PubMed if people are so inclined, but otherwise I've also written for Stat News in the past and in this very area of health coaching in particular, and I do have a couple of articles coming out in the Skeptical Inquirer very soon. Wow, congratulations, that's impressive. Excellent. Thank you. All right, hey, well, thank you so much for joining us and uh, we'll have to have you back. You'll no doubt cover this more in the future and there's probably much more to say. So uh, please come back and talk about this again. Thank you so much. All right. All right. Well, that has been our, uh, our newest writer, Katie Shaletta, talking about uh, this goofy Integrative Medicine Institute <laughs> health coaching. Uh, don't do that, folks. It's not good for you. Okay, folks. Well, let's move on to our second story of the day. And this is by our, uh, our very own Dr. Dinnerstein here to break down uh, this article about COVID vaccines, because of course, this is always in the news. I don't think it's ever going to stop being in the news, uh, Chuck, for the next decade or so. But this is a piece that you wrote with uh, our good friend and colleague, Dr. Henry Miller. It's called Following the Data, Newest COVID Vaccination Recommendation. And this is, of course, about the latest booster that um, federal regulators and scientists have looked at, and I believe they're recommending it to everyone over six months of age. So let, let me read this intro and then you can dive into the specifics and tell us what's important here. So you and Henry write, last week, 
And that was, of course, written on September 19th. So not last week for you folks listening. But in any case, the FDA and CDC presented their recommendations for the newest round of COVID-19 vaccines. As with everything COVID, there are proponents and detractors, or putting it another way, both knowledgeable experts and disinformation spreading attention seekers. The reality is that a group of experts made a judgment based on actual data. We discussed the evidence here so you can make your own informed decision. Okay, very nice summary there, Chuck. Take it away. What do people need to know about these uh, these latest boosters? Um, well, I, I, I think that there is some there is a, a fair degree of uncertainty uh, surrounding um, the boosters. And what I'd hoped to do uh, was to bring the evidence that the experts looked at to the public's attention and make the decision that if you're able to make it to the end of the article and understand what we're talking about, you're able to make your own choice. The, the I, I think that it's important because it shows the um, length that the experts went to to understand what the problem was, including looking at um, what people's views of vaccine were in terms of making uh, a policy decision. Um, so I, I think it had a lot of advantage there. In terms of, um, and I'm just going to walk through it pretty quickly, um, in terms of the risk, the risk populations are the populations that we've known all along at this point. They're the people that are uh, older, the people that are uh, have more medical uh, comorbidities or have some kind of immunocompromise. Those are the people most at risk for hospitalizations. Those are both people most at risk for dying. Um, the groups in between that, which you can't necessarily separate out on the basis of age, um, have uh, less risk of developing uh, COVID that requires hospitalization. But uh, as Henry often points out, uh, they do continue to have a risk of developing uh, what's being called long COVID. Uh, so if you wish to avoid any kind of COVID-related problems, it's better to avoid getting sick. Um, I thought it was interesting that when you look at a map of chronic conditions, so many of the chronic conditions are in our southeast. Um, uh, and when you, when you look at issues of poverty and other issues, they also seem to center a lot in the so southeast. So I think that there's, we have a problem um, left over from the Civil War, <laughs> if nothing else, uh, in there. In any case, or moving on, the vaccine um, was discussed, but the data available to discuss the current version of the vaccine is severely limited. There is some a small group of a uh, small study of the new vaccine in humans from Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine. Uh, the testing was done in mice, but this is basically the way um, testing is done for seasonal flu. We don't do large people studies any longer on seasonal flu. Uh, we know that this this mode of vaccinating with mRNA uh, effectively uh, stimulates the the immune system, and now the question is whether we're choosing the uh, right uh, species variants 
of, of COVID to go after. The, the vaccine continues to remain safe with the exception of an incidence of myocarditis, which is predominantly in young males. It's predominantly related to the Moderna vaccine. So that risk can be attenuated by getting the Pfizer shot. Um, in addition, uh, the data suggests that the incidence of myocarditis uh, in people getting COVID is greater than the incidence of myocarditis in people being vaccinated. So that it, while it's elevated across the general population, when you look specifically at individuals getting COVID, uh, vaccines, again, uh, appear to be more protective. And then that's all the data that's kind of sitting in there that was presented to the, um, the panel. The other thing that I thought was interesting in there was the, um, the breakdown on who was concerned about the vaccine and who was not. Basically, a third of the population is going to get the vaccine. A third of the population is not going to get the vaccine under any circumstances. And a third of the population is at least open to the conversation. Um, and I, and I, so I think that if we're going to have public health efforts, we really might as well direct it um, towards that, that middle group and, and not continue to thrash around trying to convince the ones that are never uh, going to take it for whatever reasons they have. The, the committee decided to make a recommendation uh, that all individuals over age six months should get the vaccine. Um, and that's caused some back and forth. And I, I think that this is at the point at which um, public health policy begins to separate itself out from scientific information and, and especially scientific uncertainty. Um, I think this, that it's worthwhile having a conversation with your, um, your primary care doctor or going back to the last segment, your, your wellness coach, <laughs> And, and seeing um, what the trade-off is for you. And I think that's probably why we thought it was worthwhile to put the data out there. The people that, there are people that are going to say that they do not want to take the risk, they are adverse to risk, and they're going to go ahead and get the vaccination. And there are people that are say, screw it, I'll take my chances, and, and, and they're not. And you have to kind of decide into which group you ultimately f fall. Uh, you know, for my age group, which is over 65 and with uh, some medical comorbidities, uh, this is this is very straightforward. Everybody I know uh, is going to get the uh, vaccination. It's interesting when I start to think about it in terms of my grandson, who is going to be three, and what his parents should do. I don't know that um, him getting uh, the vaccination um, is going to be protective of him. But I think that it will re reduce um, the risk of him bringing it home from preschool. And, and, and you, have a, you have a young one too, so you know that they're just little vectors of disease. They just bring home everything. You know? um, so I, I think that the, you can make an argument that while young children uh, are not going to suffer the ravages of it, that if um, they live in a, in a 
in a family setting where there's people at risk that it might be worthwhile protecting them because you protect the people at risk, not so much protecting the child, but protecting grandma and grandpa that happen to be, you know, babysitting for them on multiple occasions. And there we go. It's a really helpful article. And I think as you alluded to a minute ago, I appreciate that you included so much data and you were clear about how complete it was or how incomplete it was. And you said, you know, here's how they made the judgment and here's our assessment of it. And I'm sure you did that deliberately because you're going, and and other experts have said this too, is right. We're going for the middle of the curve, so to speak, right? There's a, there's a, there's a segment of the population that can be convinced to get this vaccine for like the reasons you just said, you know, keeping a, a young child from getting someone more vulnerable, very sick. So, I think if this had been the approach of everybody from the very, very start, if the CDC had taken this approach, if the press had taken this approach, I think we would have seen much less vaccine hesitancy. There would have been less conflict in terms of, you know, we've got doctors on this side, the Marty McCarries of the world and so forth. And then we've got, you know, the Tony Fauci's and it's this grand epic cultural struggle. Um, And that would have been great. What are your thoughts on, on that? Oh, I think that's definitely the case. I mean, I, in addition to, to making the data that they looked at transparent, because we just, I just pulled slides from their PowerPoint, um, and all of this is available online. It's just not um, something that people are going to dig around and get. We count on our media people to bring it to us. But not only do you get to see the data that they looked at, you get to see the length to which they went to make um, – a decision that they were comfortable with. And that's the process of making the decisions is certainly as important as the information underlining it. And, you know, the bottom line is I agree with you. I think that if we had taken that approach before, that would have been the most helpful. I think that there's a problem. Um, there's, a, there's a twofold problem. There is um, a basic health literacy that's, at the 8th, ninth, 10th grade level across the country, government documents are supposed to be written to the 8th grade reading level because that will get to the most of our citizens. So it's very tough in one sense to put this kind of information forward. On the other hand, um, our agencies failed us in the sense that they didn't even make the attempt uh, to, to put this stuff where they can be found. Uh, we... I, I ended with that piece from uh, Carlo Rovelli, who's just a, just a wonderful uh, scientist. Uh, and, they, they, and I'll quote, anti-scientism feeds on the disillusionment over science's inability to deliver a definitive vision of the world on the fear of accepting ignorance. And false certainties are preferred to the lack of certainty. And to me, that has captured the entire um, problem. With, with COVID vaccines. So I want to get to some comments Paul Offit made because he has been surprisingly somewhat of an outlier. Um, yes. At least, at least on the, the, the later half of the pandemic, I, I want to say like maybe like mid 2021 and later he has been, he's not like, I don't want to oversell this, but he has been somewhat critical of the booster programs as they've been rolled out. And he said something similar that you just did, but he seemed to draw a slightly different conclusion. He said one of the reasons 
the committee said we're going to recommend this sh this shot to everyone uh, older than six months is that you know people have a hard time processing nuanced information and so if we say this population needs it because they're more at risk this one doesn't but it might be good to give it to them because they could affect the at risk you know i guess the panel collectively said we don't want to deal with that and Offit's point was well we we have all sorts of nuanced medical healthcare advice all the time and he gave the example of uh uh, any uh, monoclonal antibody treatments. Mm -hmm. He said, right? That, like we tell people, this is for people who are at or who have severe disease. It's not for people who don't have that. And then the world keeps spinning, you know. So I'm wondering, I'm wondering what your thoughts on are on that. Because my impression is, as a layperson, you know, I'm capable of reading guidance in English and understanding basic concepts. And I'm sure most people feel the same way. So what do you think about that? Yeah. So I think that there's there's two things at play in here. First of all, I think that, um, as I tried to allude to previously, there's a distrust on the part of the government to the people understanding what they're being told. Um, and what that's due to, I'm not going to venture a guess, but I, I think that in a lot of ways, uh, the government, they're, quote, dumbed down um, what they tell us so that we we can all understand it and that we can probably understand things better um, than they imagine. And then I think the other problem is um, an ongoing tension between population health and personalized medicine. And we're going to see that grow and grow uh, over the next few years because we can begin to personalize medicine in ways that we couldn't previously and we still are stuck in the mode of communication that treats everybody as the same and a one-size-fits-all recommendation and, and to me one of the great tragedies um, of seeing the end of primary care as it was known 50 60 years ago is that we are losing um, the counsel of somebody that knows our particular medical situation and can personalize these recommendations uh, in the way that I did for myself and the way that I do for my family um, for them. And, you know, so that kind of gets back to where we started the, the day talking about the wellness coaches. Um, and I'm not recommending that they be the ones that you talk to, but I think that we all need some kind of a, "Quote unquote wellness coach." For for many years, that was the the purview of primary care, and maybe that's where it should uh, go back to. But that would that would solve a lot of these issues of how you take um, the guideline recommendations and make them work for you, because then you have somebody that has uh, training and experience, and clearly should be understanding the guidelines and knows your health to advise you. Uh, that in itself is a fascinating topic. I think we should take up some time is, you know, how the fact or, or how these different treatment protocols are developed. Because if you have big giant insurance companies and big giant federal bureaucracies providing, or at least paying for the healthcare that people receive, you can't help but develop these kind of streamlined, you know, yes. for this, for this condition, you give this medication or this therapy. And if that doesn't work, then you do this next one. And 
you know, if there's something that might work differently for an individual, you know, that sort of falls through the cracks because it's like, well, I can't bill for that and Medicare doesn't cover it. So, you know, you know, tough luck if it doesn't work for you, I guess. So, so maybe that's something we can cover. Oh yeah. If you have thoughts now, feel free to share them, but. Well, you know, it's, it's already underway. You know, when we talk about, um, a lot of the, um, autoimmune diseases that are treated with biologics rather than, um, what we would think of as usual medications. The biologics cost significantly more than the uh, single chemical compounds. Um, and as a result, the insurance companies have put up a lot of rationing by hassle in order to get to them. And, and the usual one is, is considered step therapy. And that step therapy says that if you, you want to get a biological, you have to use all the other medicines that are cheaper uh, and that have been used in the past before you get to use them. And, you know, it's, it's a problem for the doctors who have to get on the phone and have conversations about getting these medications pre-authorized because they, they're looking at the patient and know that they're not responding to standard care and that they need these more expensive biologics. And there's just massive roadblocks. Uh, in terms of you got to fill out a form and then we've got to wait 20 days and then we're going to deny it and then you can go appeal it and anything to drag it out <laughs> um, along the way. And, and that's just one, one of many areas where you start to see this, this tension between personalized care and, and, and general population uh, health care. What a joke. That's so frustrating because I've I've experienced this in my own life and we won't get into the details, but I've seen instances where the doctor goes, oh, well, this is the standard treatment at this particular juncture. And if it doesn't work, we'll go to this other thing that's more effective. And my my first reaction was like, well, why don't you just use the thing that, you know, works better and then we can all wrap this up and go on with our lives and then we can save money. You know, I'd, anyways, that's a that's a strange aspect. I, I did have a final question, and this is towards the end of your piece. And you're talking about the public reaction to who's going to get vaccinated. But you point out that in, in the pretty significant survey from just June, it's over 4,000 adults, um, among healthcare providers, um, they yeah. have the lowest rates of recommending COVID shots compared with flu or other routine vaccines. So again, you can't know what's in these people's heads, but as a physician yourself, what do you think is going on? Are they just, are they looking at the, the committee data and they're going, you know, this is just so whimsical and I'm not really sure, so I'm just not going to deal with it or what's going on? That I don't have any good clue into <laughs> to, to what it is, and I and I don't wish to uh, make any conclusions about what my colleagues are thinking about. I think that it's probably um, in some setting is a landmine that you don't really don't want to get into because um, because of the way. Um, this has become a cultural uh, virtue signal in one direction or the other. Um, and that that may be part uh, of why it is. But, and, and I think that legitimately uh, physicians have looked at data and made their own conclusions uh, about what's going on. And, and not everyone is recommending it. You know, I, I, I disagree a little bit uh with Henry on this, you know, it, Henry's a little bit more adamant than I that we should uh, religiously follow the, the CDC uh, guidelines. So, you know, when we sit down and we have a, 
uh, a chat, you know, then then the nuance becomes clear um, in, in terms of his thinking. But I think that uh, there are there's it. You are not a bad physician. You are not someone that is is um, drinking at the well of misinformation when you say to your patient, if you're uncomfortable with this, you don't need to get it. Fair enough. Very good advice, you know, and I, I appreciate your approach to so many topics, you know, because here's the data, here's my expert opinion, do what you want. <laughs> right? well, you know, this is, the, you know, as a surgeon, I've, you know, I've said before, nobody comes into the office saying, gee, could you do an operation on me? The few that do, you don't want to operate on. Right. Um, <laughs> so, you know, and, you know, and, and shockingly enough, in my lifetime, people have wanted second opinions. I can't believe that they didn't think that I had the right answer. And when you, <laughs> when, you when you look at that, that particular form of doctor shopping, they're looking for someone that has an opinion that's more in line with what they're thinking. And there's, you know, everybody has a right to make their their own choice. I can just tell you what the consequences are, and you know, you roll with it from there. Yeah, fascinating stuff. I once heard a uh, a psychiatrist explaining to a, a patient who was trying to care for their dying parent. You know, it's like he won't go to the doctor. He won't take his meds. What do I do? He doesn't listen to me. And the psychiatrist was like, "Just go to the funeral." <laughs> <laughs> it's like that's just such beautiful advice. You know, it's like you know, okay, hey. horse to water and all that. You know, you um, can lead. Yeah, you can lead him to water. You cannot shove their head under the water and pour it from the drink. It doesn't work. <laughs> All, right. All right, folks, we're going to leave it there for the week. Thank you for joining us. As always, we'll be back next time uh, for episode 55. But in the meantime, follow us on social media. The organization is at ACSH org on Twitter. I'm at Cam J English. Tweet your questions, your comments. We will interact with them on the show because that's just how we roll here. Um, and if you have topics that you want to recommend, we'll probably talk about them if uh, nothing you're interested. So with that, have a lovely week and we will see you 